Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Guys, it has happened. Nikki Haley has officially entered the race for 2024. Get excited. We've got all the highlights. <laughs> She's already embarrassing herself with Hannity last oh, night, yeah. so we'll show you all of that. Also, uh, President Biden's supposed to make uh, some remarks about the UFO situation and the Chinese spy balloon situation. This comes as they are also warning, you know, guys, we just may not yes. be able to get any of that yeah. debris. We may never really know we what may never happened. Know. Eh. Who's to say, uh, ultimately? We also have an update from Ohio, actually a number of updates from Ohio, as uh, what appears to be a potential cover-up unfolding. Uh, residents are told to drink bottled water, but assured that the air quality is perfectly fine. Meanwhile, Norfolk Southern, of course, that's the uh, owner of that train that ultimately derailed because of lax safety provisions. They bailed on a public town hall they were supposed to attend last night. People are absolutely outraged, as they should be. So we have all of the details there. Also, some updates on Ukraine. Uh, some indication, maybe the Biden administration is thinking that they need to engage in some diplomacy, at least here down the road. We'll see about that. And also Republican support for continuing to support uh, Ukraine with the level of aid that we have has been dropping. And we've got a great moment for you from Andrea Mitchell and John Bolton that you just gotta, you gotta check out. There's a lot of layers one. there. Yeah, yes. you can't miss this one. All right, but let's start with the woman herself, Nikki Haley, officially launching her campaign yesterday, delivering her launch speech Heavy on bio, heavy on some sort of like veiled references, maybe to Trump, mm. definitely to Biden. Let's take a listen. And take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country. We're ready 
past the stale ideas and faded names of the past. And we are more than ready for a new generation to lead us into the future. In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. We'll have term limits for Congress. And mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. Later that evening, she went on with uh, Sean Hannity over at Fox News and went ahead and proved the sort of central problem of her candidacy when she was totally unable to answer how she differed on policy from former President Trump. Take a listen. What specific policy areas would you would you say part with Donald Trump? What I am saying is I don't kick sideways. I'm kicking forward. Joe Biden is the president. He's the one I'm running against. And what I'm saying is you don't have to be 80 years old to be president. We don't need to have these same people going back again. We need something new. We need a new generation of fighters. We need people that understand where the American, your average American is coming from, and we shouldn't be afraid to fight for that. And that's what I'm willing to do. I'm not going to kick sideways. I don't have time for that. That's not my focus. I'm kicking forward. It's all about Joe Biden. She's kicking Why is she always soccer. kicking? Why is everything kicking? <laughs> With the heels. With the heels. <laughs> why are, it's like a feet thing. Like, why are, why are we always talking about Nikki Haley's feet? Well, I don't it, understand. It got worse from there because actually yeah. Hannity asked her again. He went back. And he's like, okay, that's mm -hmm. fine. Kicking sideways or whatever. But President Trump is the one in the race. These things are all about contrast. What is a policy difference that you have? And she just went back to that same, like, I'm not kicking sideways, I'm kicking forward, which means not, I mean, it was a very, like. It's like the Marco Rubio moment with Chris Christie. Yeah. And he says it over, over and over It's again. like, oh, yeah. you memorized this one line and you literally have nothing else yeah, to say about it. it. And, and listen, if you can't say Trump's name, yeah. if you can't lay out how you're different from him, don't waste your time. And that's to you, Nikki Haley, that's to all of these mm -hmm. people. If you can't directly challenge this guy and lay out some reason other than your age that you are different from him and that you have a different policy vision, I don't know why you're bothering. Oh, absolutely. You know, the funny thing is, is they don't want to mention Trump. Trump is fine mentioning them. Oh, I mean, yeah. Immediately, <laughs> he's taunting her, being like, she said she would never run against me. I guess she, maybe she needs to answer why she broke her promise. Uh, we have this, you know, let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Immediately after she makes her announcement, uh, yeah, yeah, here you have that 2021, um, that moment where she actually outright comes out and says, yeah, this is why I'm not going to vote against Trump or why I'm against Trump. We need to acknowledge he let us down. He went down a path that he shouldn't have and he shouldn't have followed him. We shouldn't have listened to him. We can't let that happen this ever again. This was right after January exactly. 6th. Then, then she then goes like, to Mar-a-Lago and apologizes. Like a month later. Right. And then so. she says, I won't ever run against him as long as President Trump is in the race. So make up your mind, lady. Wh which is it? Like, you know, and just back to the point, like Trump is willing to go after her immediately. Put this next one uh, up there. Immediately after her candidacy is announced, she come, he comes out with a scathing actual policy it's, disagreements this, yeah. with Nikki Haley, Crystal. This, was, this yeah. is interesting. Let me read you uh, some of the things that he lays out here because the line of attack 
Several of them are quite fascinating. First of all, he pulled this quote from her where she said, the reason I ran for office is because of Hillary Clinton. And so his headline is, right. Hillary Clinton is an inspiration, Nikki Haley. But the very next thing he leads with is Haley supported Paul Ryan's plan for entitlement reform, mm -hmm. threatening Medicare and Social Security. Um, he also, the next thing on his list is instead of finding a peaceful solution to the Ukraine-Russia war, Haley has supported sending more American fighter planes to fuel the war. He goes on to talk about uh, her, you know, differences on immigration, some transgender bathroom bill, and uh, also, you know, takes credit for bringing Otto Warmbier home. His mother was uh, introducing Haley there. And then the last one is Haley flip-flops on the 2024 race. And this is her saying, oh, I'm not going to run against Trump and then ultimately getting in the race. But Sagar, I thought this one, two of them I thought were really interesting. One is him going after her for saying she'd cut Medicare and mm -hmm. Social Security, which is something that he signaled he's going to go after DeSantis on as well. And um, almost sort of makes the case that President Biden is making about Republicans, too, that there are quite a lot of Republicans who have been interested in cutting yep. Social Security and Medicare and continue to be interested in cutting Social Security and Medicare. And then the other piece that we've highlighted before is Trump clearly sees a lane for himself in the Republican primary, uh, pushing back on the direction of Ukraine aid and support, pushing more for a diplomatic uh, solution. Now, listen, guys, you never know what this guy is actually mm -hmm. going to do. So it's not like I take his words all that seriously. But he clearly sees a political opportunity here. And we're going to have some polling later in the show on Ukraine that I think backs him up in that oh, regard. Oh, absolutely, it backs him up. And beyond that, actually, let's say 50% of Republicans say that they don't want to continue to support Ukraine. Well, then all those people are going to support Trump because every other Republican does want to continue to support Ukraine. It's actually very smart. Um, and savvy move. I thought that the attack was perfect, actually, because he led with the she's disloyal because she uh, used to support Hillary. Then he hits her on probably the most salient policy difference around entitlement reform, Medicare, Social Security, then Ukraine, then immigrate. It's like a greatest hits of all the things that matter most to the Republican base. I mean, look, she never had a chance in hell. The opportunity that she had to actually contrast herself with Trump just doesn't exist. And increasingly, I don't believe that any of this uh, kind of Kennedy-esque attempt, new frontier, new generation, it just doesn't meet the moment, as much as I would like for it to. I really do. But I don't politically- it It's I, gotta have something more to well, it than just like, I'm younger than you. Oh, absolutely. You know? <laughs> but I'm saying, okay, you know, you take the new frontier, you're like, it was not only a new generation, but it was like a new generation policy ideas. Didn't yeah. necessarily work out all that well. But what I'm saying is that that was at least aspirational of getting away from like the closet of the 1950s and the, the stagnation of all of that. I'm doing some of my monologue on, on this and age and why it, what, to the extent that it matters and doesn't. But the point with this is that she's not offering anything new. It's like, okay, you're 51 years old, but you are a complete creature of the Washington establishment, which is what Trump is hitting her on. And that's what the fundamental disconnect is. I mean, the thing with Nikki Haley yeah. is, listen, guys, y'all know I'm not a fan of Donald right. Trump. But the few things that he was right about, she's wrong on. Right. Like, from a policy perspective, right. there is just no doubt she is way worse than Trump. And rather than being an actually a new generation or some sort of evolution from Trump, she's actually a regression to the Paul Ryan politics that dominated D.C. before Trump. And so that's what you're getting at is <clears throat> it'd be one thing if it was like, OK, here's a new generation. These are fresh ideas and here's a whole new approach and way of thinking about America and the problems. No. 
but it's not that. It's literally a throwback. The people who were upset in the Republican Party when Trump came into office and had at least some different ideas about trade and China and some other things, they want control back and they think she might be a vessel to be able to bring the party back to where it was during the like Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan era ultimately. So that's why the, the critique on Social Security and Medicare is a really fascinating one because this is a, becoming a very clear and salient dividing line within the Republican Party. And my God, I mean, literally ever since Social Security was passed, conservatives have been trying to roll it back. And of course, we've seen various efforts. I mean, George W. Bush trying to privatize. We saw Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney. And Democrats have been complicit in this at many times as well. I mean, during the Obama-Biden administration, they actually accepted a deal that also would have cut Social Security. The Tea Party said it didn't go far enough, so it didn't ultimately happen. But it's a very new dynamic where you have all of the Democrats effectively saying, no, 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 we don't want to cut Social Security. And quite a number of Republicans saying the same thing as well at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, overall, I think that it just highlights the biggest problem for all of these Republicans. Put this next one on the screen from The New York Times. It just talks about all of these prospective candidates. They're trying to topple Trump and they, Trump and they can barely utter his name. She doesn't <laughs> say his name one time at all. What's the point? The pastor that is introducing her, he doesn't say anything about Trump. It's all just this vague nonsense. Yeah. Like, we got to move on. We got to have generation. a new generation. And, you know, I also, she didn't pick 75 for no reason. You know why? Trump is 76 years old as of today. So that well, was like, but they're all subtle digs. People yeah. don't know. I, I, if, if I hadn't just told you Trump is 76, I don't think people know what his actual age is. But the the yeah. audience mostly thought she was talking about Joe Biden. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, reporter Benji Sarlin made this point, which I thought uh. was intelligent, which is, you know, he was recalling back when Marco Rubio was trying out a very similar line of new generation, et cetera, et cetera, and taking these shots that, you know, he was hoping people would interpret as being about Donald Trump, but they didn't interpret them that way. Like, you have to come out and say it, right? And if you aren't willing to come out and say it, and really take him head on and lay out something. I just don't know what you think you're going to ultimately accomplish here. And it's not just Nikki Haley. I mean, listen, Ron DeSantis isn't in the race yet, but he also, in his rebuttals to the attacks on Trump, he also does a similar dance of just saying, well, look at the scoreboard, but yep. not directly taking him on ultimately. And you're, you're not, maybe he's going to change once he actually gets in the race. Maybe he'll take a more direct approach. It's got to be, it's, it's entirely necessary if you're ultimately going to succeed here. So um, the fact that uh, none of these people can directly confront him while Trump is happy to take them on. He also, his uh, initial comments about Nikki getting into the race, he was like, eh, the more the merrier. Yeah, more the merrier. He doesn't see her as a threat. And immediately he was like, she's polling at 1%. She's got a long way to go. Right. Or something. Well, and, he's right. He should and taunt her. And not only that, but yeah. he's also correct in the analysis that for him, the more that get into the race, it's definitely is better for him. Yeah. So he's happy to see Nikki and Tim Scott and Chris Sununu and John Bolton and all these people lining up, not to mention, you know, Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence lining up to jump into the race. Um, speaking of uh, being vague and potentially running for president, former vice president Mike Pence laying out some also sort of like, you know, vague, buzzwordy consultant speak case for himself recently. Take a listen to this. What we need in this country is a return to common sense and common values, a return to common good the overwhelming majority of the American people support. And look, this is a big country. It's a beautifully diverse population. I'm a conservative, but I'm not in a bad mood about it. 
my best friends are just as fiercely liberal as me. But when you push back from the table, there are issues that bring us together. This is so vague. Boilerplate, boring, common sense, common sense. Common common sense. good. Common good. They, you know, this actually, for people who are in the know, the whole common good conservatism was like a real Paul Ryan uh, push back to 2000 uh, eras Bush conservatism. And it's like, look, guys, like how many times are we going to learn the same lesson? This stuff doesn't work. Like what the base and even the country wants is nothing to do with any of this think tank vague language. What are you going to do for me? What are you actually running? on. And with Trump, to the extent that he's ever done worst in politics, it's always whenever he departs away from that. So he is right back to his strong suit, attacking Republicans on Medicare and Social Security. You got a very old Republican base who are hardcore with Trump on this, and they are not with the donor class. Also, I actually think this is the biggest problem for Haley, DeSantis, and others. The Republican establishment wants them to win specifically because they're not Trump. And the people who back them, whether they like it or not, are exactly those who Trump vanquished in the 2016 primary. Yeah. Paul Singer was one of those people, vehemently, staunchly anti-Trump all the way up until he won the nomination. Ken Griffin and many of the other billionaires that have come out and that are backing um, that are backing uh, Ron DeSantis are similar. I saw yesterday Bill Ackman actually endorsed Vivek Ramaswamy. He was like, like, I think Vivek is going to win. Tell people who that is. Uh, Vivek is a guy who wrote, wrote the Woke Inc. book. We've had him here on the show. He's been on The Realignment as well, if you want to go listen to those interviews. He apparently is thinking about running for president. But Bill Ackman is also, you know, he's one of those where you might remember him for trying to crash the market during COVID and making a killing whenever he was shorting it. Uh, that's what I remember him for. Private equity guy. You know, one of those Mitt Romney-type Republicans. Any The more posturing that these people make, they're the ones who the voters hate. So, yeah. like, anytime you're backing up, against, you're backing up behind them, you're actually having the opposite intended effect. It's just one of those where all their money is going to come and all of their support is going to come from fundamentally a more establishment coalition. The only one with a chance possibly of doing that is Ron DeSantis. And he still has a very, very tough line to walk in all of that. And the only chance he really has is if he's the only one in the race. And what you're seeing from the Tim Scotts and the Nikki Haley's and now Mike Pence's and all those is the anti-Trump vote is going to be totally split. And mm-hmm. Trump is going to use that completely to his advantage. It's the narcissism of these Republican politicians and of the establishment, which will ultimately bring them down in this. Yes, yeah. indeed. Uh, here's the latest, just so you have a sense, primary tracker for Morning Consult. I always have to say, the polls have been all over the map. Yeah. So, I mean, always take polling with a grain of salt. Take it with, like, a lot of skepticism because there are continuing uh, polls that show Ron DeSantis in a stronger position and some that even show him beating Donald Trump right now. But here's Morning Consult has Trump at 47, Ron DeSantis at 31, Mike Pence at 7, Nikki Haley down at 3%, along with Liz Cheney and Ted Cruz. So, uh, and you know, when you look at the morning consult, they always do these trackers that are like every week they check in. And um, it's been pretty stable in terms of their polling. It's been basically everybody's been clustered around these same percentages um, the entirety of the time that they have been polling. So that's where things stand. I just thought it was remarkable in particular. I mean, number one, we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I also got to say, like, the identity politics from Nikki Haley leaning into the, the bio and being a, a brown girl in Bamberg, South Carolina or whatever. And she even then, right after she laid out one of those lines, she immediately was like, oh, I don't believe in identity politics. Like, girl, what are you doing right now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just be 
Why, why can't you just be a good governor from South Carolina? And here, yeah, look, once again, you can lean into your bio. I'm also proud of being a child of Indian immigrants. I think that's fine, you know, but the, the trying to like cast it as part of this and then also rejecting like some of the tenets of leftism, which are clearly utilizing in your own campaign and will show you some of her merch. That is what's cringe to me. Like yeah. either do it or don't. Right. But you are trying to have it both ways. And you know, broadly, she part of the reason why, part of the reason why I hate it is there's nothing underneath that. It's like, okay, what else? You know, I remember this, all this happened during the Kamala thing in the Indian community. People were like, we got to support Kamala because Indian. I'm like, well, yeah, what does she think though? Like, what, what does she actually believe? Right. You know, in India, Trump is more popular than Kamala. You know why? Because they don't care about her background. The, the <laughs> other thing uh, with Nikki Haley doing this is like, I, I mean, I think she has an awareness that this only gets her so far with the Republican base. Mm -hmm. But her whole, she has no policy plan that's different or that she wants to lean into. So even the new generation stuff is really identity based. I mean, it's just literally about what, like what year you were born in. So her whole pitch is bio, uh, is like based in her bio rather than any sort of specific policy plan. And listen, I just don't think that that it sells with the Republican base, with the Democratic base, with the American people. You can ask Kamala Harris how well it worked yes. out for her in the Democratic primary, right, exactly. ultimately. Yeah, and I think that's the way it should be. Yes, indeed. Okay. Let's move on to UFOs, uh, interesting developments there. So President Biden actually broke this morning, is scheduled at least at some point today to bring us an address on what's going on with the UFOs, specifically most likely around their version the, of the Chinese story, balloon, anyway. their version <laughs> of the story. But one thing that you should keep in mind is just as we predicted here on our show on Tuesday. Let's put this up there on the screen. Well, officials now say in all three cases, these debris of these downed objects, they're never going to be recovered. The White House is trying to, quote, tamp down on conspiracies. They say, mm. if it can't be recovered, it's just going to be very difficult to say with great certainty what these things actually are. That'll so, tamp down the conspiracies. Yeah, that'll certainly tamp down the conspiracies. <laughs> I mean, look, here's the thing. They've now had days in every single one of these instances. I've checked in the weather conditions have been changing in the Yukon and in Alaska, Lake Huron. So as we told you previously, first it was choppy water. Okay, that lasts for a day. All right, so what about the next day? Well, now it's too deep. I went ahead and checked. The maximum depth of Lake Huron is 754 feet. That is actually quite deep. However, um, we have had multiple instances in our history where we have gotten stuff from far deeper, the US Navy specifically. There's actually a military base on Lake Huron or very nearby with some capabilities. We know that the US Navy has all of these different assets that they can fly and bring from across the board. Or at the very least, like, why don't you tell people, we have the equipment, we have a concerted effort, it'll be up in two months, something like that. They're yeah. not even coming out and saying that. They're just like, yeah, debris recovery operations are ongoing and continue. And remember, to date, we've had no images, we've had no photos. Now look, we can wait and see for what the president says. Uh, some pilot audio actually came out from the F-16. Uh, one of the things that really comes out from the pilots is they're like, we have no idea what that is. They're like, I don't know what it is. I think I see some string. No, I don't see any string. I don't know how it's staying aloft. It's really small. They actually said it was, since it was moving and staying aloft at 40,000 feet, and they were moving at such a high rate of speed, they had yeah. difficulty even keeping a visual on it. We know that the uh, missile actually missed over Lake Huron. It required two missiles, which actually get a target lock on them, indicating it possibly maybe have had some heat signature. And, you know, look, I want to say again, it's po it probably is a balloon. It probably is. But it's one of those where they have got to at least assure and tell the public about what's going on. And we know, we know, 
bet for all the way from over 20 years now, that you have internal video that can be released, as have been released, with the UFO videos. Mm. One of the things that struck me the most were some of the comments from senators after the classified briefing, where they were honestly outraged with the Biden administration. This was bipartisan, actually. They were like, this has been going on for years. They didn't tell us anything. We have no idea, and we have got to answer more questions about what's going on. Senator John Kennedy and others reacted immediately on Capitol Hill. Here's what they had to say. I just know that, that going into this, the last two hearings, I had the impression that this was uh, uh, something that, that had happened over the last two weeks, and that's not accurate. This has been going on a long time. Now that this cow is out of the barn, uh, the president and the director of national intelligence needs to address it. Uh, they need to explain to the American people if they know, and I'm not sure they know, if they know they're not telling us, uh, what these things are, who put them up there, and do they pose a threat to the American people. The director of national intelligence coordinates all that. She is a cabinet-level uh, officer. Uh, she needs to come brief the United States Congress, and uh, then she and President uh, Biden need to talk straight to the American people. That would and just be nice. Answer, yeah. Just answer basic questions. A lot of frustration on Capitol Hill. Senator Tom Cotton saying the same thing. Senator Dick Durbin, many of these people saying the same. They're like, hey, look, we didn't learn anything. Tom Cotton was like, I learned more from reading the news than I did from the classified briefing. And I just want to say again, if they thought it was really a balloon, they would have said so. If they had any confidence that it was something that they could identify positively, they would have told Congress. What do you also learn from that, especially from Senator Kennedy's comments? This has been going on for a long time. It's exactly what we've been saying here for years now um, in the discussion of this topic. And the revelations are really is that whenever you uncalibrate the radar from where it previously was, it turns out you're going to find all sorts of things that are flying up in your airspace. Crystal, you had that uh, idea that maybe they're just going to recalibrate back. I, I, I would not I would not put it past them. They're like, we don't want to deal with this. We don't want to look at I mean, we haven't what's had going on. Shoot down, so maybe they already did that. They're like, listen, ignorance was bliss. Let's yeah. just go back to that regime. I think that's very likely. Yeah. I mean, and, and also, in terms of stuff coming out on the Chinese balloon, um, currently, intelligence says that we actually watched the balloon take off from Hainan Island. Um, the Chinese are saying, apparently with some earnestness, trying to tamp down the tensions. They're like, look, we only meant for it to fly over Hawaii and Guam. And Guam. They're like, we didn't men mean for it to drift well, up here. I mean, according to the reporting, yeah. the U.S. is actually actually kind of buying. Yeah, that they're is, like, that that's they the think case it might because be true. They, yeah, they watched it take. I, I guess there were yeah. unusual weather patterns, and there were actually some indication that after it was spotted over Montana or whatever, the Chinese were actually trying to bring. But <laughs> when a anyway, I don't know, but. Um, the other piece that was interesting to me, I think it was in that same article that's in the New York Times about the uh, Chinese spy balloon. They're getting from their administration sources that, oh, we think that these other balloons were probably like weather balloons mm -hmm. that were defunct. And it was basically just like air debris or trash. What does that mean? It's like, yeah. well, I mean, first of all, we need proof. Yeah. I mean, that's number trash one. Trash doesn't fly around static at 40,000 feet for hours on end. Okay? Well, this and also, yeah. you use two Hellfire missiles right. to take down a freaking dead weather balloon? Really? Yeah. Really? Um, and as we have pointed out already, the fact that they are unwilling to say, like, oh, it was a balloon, that one dude was like, oh, there's a reason I'm saying it's an object, not a balloon. Again, there's a lot of reason to be skeptical about any of these 
claims, but it's revealing the things that they leaked to the Times. They can't say it outright because they have no proof, mm -hmm. but they can suggest on background, like, oh, this is what we really think it is. Um, judging by the reactions of members who came out of that briefing, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put too much stock in that particular explanation. And Senator Kennedy made this very eerie comment, very cryptic comment. He was like, all I'm going to say is lock your doors tonight. Yeah, exactly. And look. <laughs> what? <laughs> from what I... Look, I I've tried, I've talked to my people on Capitol Hill, Senator Rubio, Senator Gillibrand, both have been warriors on this issue, and they are the ones who are the most read in. They genuinely seem afraid of the fact that we don't know what's going on. They've pushed for transparency now for two years at every single time. The Pentagon, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence that he mentioned there have obfuscated and withheld evidence from them. We also, from Director Ratcliffe, former director uh, under Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, many of them do not report having seen any of the major intelligence. This is one of those where I really believe it is such highly compar special compartmentalized information that they are willing in some ways to keep it away from leadership and from mm. the elected officials. I told this before, John Podesta, who is the White House chief of staff, he's actually a big UFO guy. Um, he tried to get to the bottom of this whenever he was the uh, White House chief of staff to Bill Clinton, and they basically were like, go away. We're not telling you anything. President wow. Clinton is on video. You can actually go watch the clip if you're interested, where he's like, I I'll be I'm embarrassed to admit I, I tried to find out, and they wouldn't really tell me. <laughs> and so he was the commander in chief in the 90s. Things have changed somewhat in terms of some of the transparency pushes and all of that. And by the way, some indication that our show has made some difference, at least in the Pentagon. They're getting a little riled up over Jeremy Corbell's comments uh, by specifically calling people out here on our show. So oh, that's really? good. We're making Love a bit that. of a dent. I think that's great. Uh, and the point is, is that we have to continue to push, push and push. At the end of the day, all we really do have control over is public pressure, not just on the executive, but on Congress. And Congress is pissed. I really think they should be. Final thing, let's put this up there. As we alluded to, the president is uh, weighing the possibility of a Biden address on UFOs. It looks like it'll come at some time today. I don't think it's going to be a primetime address, like a 9 p.m. type thing. Maybe he'll give a press conference or maybe he'll just do a, a drop by in the White House press briefing room. We still are awaiting whatever those details are. If they break at some point to the day, we'll, we'll try and get you some yeah. coverage on that. But that's where things stand right now. In an attempt to, quote unquote, tamp down conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. You know what you can do on that regard? Yeah. Get the friggin' debris removal going. Show us what it is. Give us some proof. Even then, people are going to be skeptical because they just don't trust you because of all the lies that have been mm -hmm. told. But that would at least be some move in the right direction. Absolutely. All right, uh, we have some uh, significant updates for you out of Ohio with regards to that horrific train derailment that, uh, in the words of one hazmat expert, basically nuked an entire town with chemicals. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Um, Ohio officials are saying, oh, the air quality is fine, but don't drink the water. Uh, Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff said air quality testing shows it is the same as it was before, but uh, Tiffany Kavalek, who is Chief of Division of Surface Water for the Ohio EPA, said they are watching the cloud and how it could affect water systems. Quote, we know there is a plume moving down the Ohio River. Uh, she said that water systems are being shut down as that plume goes over an area and testing is taking place to make sure the water is safe. Residents of East Palestine are being advised to drink bottled water for now. Vanderhoff said water from the municipal system appears to be fine, but more extensive testing is ongoing. He said people with private wells should get them tested. Remediation work continues. And as a reminder, something we showed you, some of the dead fish from uh, a local... 
person who recorded video for TikTok, there have been reports of dead animals being found all around the East Palestine area. Uh, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, the official you know, source, says that 3,500 fish from 12 different species have been discovered dead. Uh, we showed you before our partners over at Status Quo interviewed uh, a fox keeper. One of his foxes died. Others of them were seriously ill. People are still reporting that they are nauseous, that they're getting headaches, that you can still smell the chemicals in the air. So a lot, a lot of skepticism about exactly what is going on there and how safe it is and what the most critically, what the long-term health impacts could ultimately be. Um, status quo, Jordan Sheridan interviewed Aaron Brockovich, um, of course, noted, uh, noted expert and crusader for safe water, safe uh, and safe air. She talked about how this could be a cover-up unfolding. Take a listen. This is definitely not your first rodeo, not my first rodeo. Uh, EPA testing is all often, if you want to give it the benefit of the doubt, flawed or not totally thorough. Um, do, do you trust? I mean, maybe they're not detecting it now, but what do you think of their no, claims that trust. they're not detecting it? I don't trust. Uh, it, in all fairness, it is going to take some time to do all of this testing. Now, some of the reports I read that the EPA initiated yesterday, they're almost talking out of two sides of their mouth because they state it's a known toxic substance, vinyl chloride, and it's known and continues to be known that it's leaking into the water, into the air, and into the soil. Okay, so we, we have that side of their story. But then over here, they go, well, we tested the homes. I've read where they didn't find any detection limit within the limits that they're supposed to be looking for. Well, that says to me, that doesn't mean you didn't find it. Right. And, but that's safe to go back. Which is it? John, do you really have enough information to call all clear? Is anyone from those agencies going and collecting the dead animals? Uh, so there's just seems to be a big gap, lack of transparency, smells like a cover up. What the hell is going on? And if you don't know what the hell is going on, I think you need to tell the community. I'm not sure what the hell is going on. She's right. Yeah. Yeah. Big gaps, lack of transparency, sure smells like a cover up. Um, and, you know, this would be far from the first time that uh, government officials and in cahoots with industry basically lie to people about what they know and uh, their confidence that these people will be safe if they, you know, come back to their homes, breathe the air, and ultimately try to drink yeah. the water. My personal favorite, uh, friends at the lever, let's put this up there on the screen, uh, Buttigieg now claiming, actually, I am completely powerless to reduce <laughs> derailment risk. Well, why exactly are you in this job? But the funny thing That's is, as they question. point out, it's just literally completely not true. Um, as they point to, the Transportation Administration actually has a tremendous amount of regulator regulatory authority over uh, cost, benefit, and analysis on the break rules before enacting it. They require executive branch overview and insight. This is the case with the FAA. This is the case now with trains and the transportation department told the lever quote, they would use all relevant authorities to ensure accountability and improve safety, safety once the investigation into the cause of the derailment is done. I mean, this is just completely and totally just putting, you know, passing the buck to trying to obfuscate yourself from responsibility. Uh, Joe Rogan even brought this up yesterday on his podcast. He's like, this guy's out there talking about diversity in the workplace in, in transportation while you have a, whole a massive poison. environmental disaster uh, that's happening here. And, you know, the EPA, as far as I understand it, they haven't even been taking regular readings of air and of water. I mean, 
look, I'm just going to be inclined to believe the residents here over whatever the BS that the company and the regular the regulatory authorities have been putting out. You you brought up that TikToker yesterday. I watched that full video, and he's like, "This is what always happens. The government just parrots the uh, company line because yeah. they don't know anything. Right. That's a, another problem too. Like." Our capacity for dealing with these disasters is actually not high. We just rely on the company-paid experts. We're like, all right, issue the press release. Everybody just move on. Well, I, I don't think we should move on. Uh, not yet. Yes, yeah. that is exactly right. And we are definitely not going to move yeah. on. And I'm going to talk about this more in my monologue. Massive, massive media failures on uh, covering this story and talking about how we got to this place. So to the extent that it's been covered at all, it's covered as this sort of like act of God, inevitable couldn't have been prevented tragedy rather than, hey, actually industry corruption in the Obama administration, in the Trump administration, and now in the Biden administration, they're the ones that stripped out the safety regulations and the guidelines. They're the reason why this train which was packed full of chemicals so toxic and explosive that they literally had to do this quote-unquote controlled release to avoid the whole thing blowing up like a literal bomb. This train was not classified as being highly flammable. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Think about that. That is all because of industry corruption. So this wasn't out of nowhere. This wasn't like, oh, my God, we couldn't prevent it. Or, oh, my God, you know, there was nothing we could do so to mitigate the impacts here. This is a specific story of corporate corruption over years and years and years. The media has completely failed to tell that story. And so it makes it easy for people like Pete Buttigieg to, you know, do his, like, feigned helplessness dance, which is something Democrats tend to be really great. Oh, we just, we'd love to do this. We just can't. We're constrained. The parliamentarian, the rules, the NTSB, whatever. They always come up with a freaking excuse. And because the media hasn't explained the story to people and the specific actions that led us to this place, it lets characters like Pete Buttigieg get off the hook for not doing the very basics of his job. There is another very specific outrage here. Norfolk Southern, which has, uh, you know, given their executives millions of bonuses. They've done massive amounts of stock buybacks to reward their shareholders rather than investing in rail safety or investing in their workforce. Those are the things that they have decided to do. And those actions directly led and contributed to this derailment. Well, last night they were supposed to show up at a town hall to answer some questions that local citizens had for them. And guess what? They backed down. Like the cowards that they are put this up on the screen. This is so outrageous. The tweet here says, just invite email. Norfolk Southern says they will not attend tonight's town hall in East Palestine because they are, quote, increasingly concerned about the growing physical threat to their employees. Mm. What about the threat to the locals in that county? And many people also pointed out, oh, really, you're so afraid for your safety? That's the real reason? Zoom is a thing that exists. Right. If you really wanted to, you know, give your side of the story and field these questions in the interest of public transparency, there were methods to do this if you were really so fearful about your safety. But of course, it has nothing to do with that. And also to try to paint these local citizens who are rightfully enraged in a negative light is absolutely enraging and outrageous. Two things that came out of that town hall uh, just last night. Number one, actually, the railroad company put gravel over contaminated soil, actually being forced to remove it by the FDA. They're calling that 
the cover-up. The second mm. was a resident actually asked the mayor of East Palestine and said, where's Pete Buttigieg? And the mayor says, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Stop. Yesterday was the first time I heard anything from the White House. So as wow. of February 15th, the mayor of East Palestine was not con- was not contacted by the White House and by at least the president's office, presumably not even President Biden himself. That's almost, what, a full week after the train derailment, after the controlled release and all of this. I mean, that is a this is a total abdication of responsibility here. And you've even got what the governor of Pennsylvania issuing questions and letters like you've got state officials here who are more invested in doing a better job than our higher authorities who are literally tasked with making sure this stuff doesn't happen. I mean, part of why this has been ignored by a lot of relevant national officials, you know, the Biden administration, obviously they've been asleep at the switch. Both of the senators from the state, Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, totally late to the party. J.D. didn't issue a statement until nine days later, even though, I mean, this is the region of the state that he's sort of most passionate about. This is technically Appalachia in Ohio. And it's because this story implicates everybody. It's not an easy partisan narrative. And the Democrats in particular are really embarrassed right now, or they should be really embarrassed right now, because they were involved in crushing this potential rail strike, Mm. which is all about, you know, the rail workers and their union representatives have been warning about safety, about rail safety, about if you keep putting profits over people, we are going to have more accidents. And lo and behold, we've had multiple, multiple derailments, including this absolute catastrophe. So it's it's very uncomfortable for them, I guess, because of their own nefarious actions and their own uh, roles in creating this problem ultimately. Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly right. All right, let's move on now to Ukraine. Uh, A very interesting piece in the Washington Post. Not necessarily uh, the reporting itself, but more about what it signifies and what the people who are leaking to them have uh, revealed, at least, about U.S. policy. So let's put this up there on the screen. Here's what they say, quote, U.S. warns Ukraine it faces a pivotal moment in the war. Now, the reason why this matters are a bunch of background quotes from the senior administration officials. They say, despite promises to back Ukraine as long as it takes, Biden officials say recent aid packages from Congress represent Kyiv's best chance to decisively change the course of the war. And they pointed specifically to Republican efforts to not support any new aid to Ukraine. So the second thing that I found fascinating was this. Senior administration said the Biden administration will continue to request as much funding as it believes, but there's no guarantees that Congress will actually do it. Now they say that the war in recent months has become a slow grind with neither side gaining the upper hand. Biden officials believe the critical juncture will come this spring when Russia is expected to launch its offensive. And more broadly, I think the real headline out of it is they were basically like, it's now or never. We're probably not going to be able to provide you any more weapons or support after this year. And after this point, you're going to have to go to the negotiating table. Yeah. Uh, What they point to, and actually, there was a couple of things here which really made me raise my eyebrows. Number one, Crystal, was this line. So uh, everyone should remember that we have uh, we have uh, given a hundred or appropriated a hundred billion to Ukraine. I believe we have sixty billion left now. Currently, on the pace that Ukraine is using ammunition, they warn that Ukraine will exhaust the current congressional package as early as this summer. So they're going to roll through sixty billion in ammo and in weapons and in support in literally a matter of months. Just showing you how much ammo that they are consuming over there in Ukraine. So number two is actually this. Zelensky is is making some moves which are really rubbing the White House the wrong way. So specifically in regards to defending the town of Bakhmut, which we've talked here, they just evacuated all those aid workers. Here's what they say. 
Ukraine has expended significant resources and troops defending Bakhmut. American military analysts have argued it is unrealistic to simultaneously defend Bakhmut and launch a spring counteroffensive to retake what the U.S. views as more critical territory. Zelensky, however, attaches a symbolic importance to Bakhmut and believes that it would be a blow to morale to lose the city. He said his country's forces would fight as long as we can. However, what they point to is that Zelensky, while he may know best to rally his country, have expressed concern that if they keep fighting everywhere that Russia sends troops, it will only work to Moscow's advantage. Why? Because Moscow has tremendous amount more material. They also say, according to them, we they have an initial force, Russia had 150,000 troops. Right now they have 300,000. Now you have hundreds of thousands more assembled in the draft. They're about to come there. The we, They are going to outnumber Ukrainian forces significantly. Now Ukraine's going to be on the defensive and a defensive warrior is always going to have, you're going to need ne- less necessarily. However, it will change if you're doing an offensive. But what they say is that Zelensky is is expending a, quote, extraordinary amount of blood and treasure for the city of Bakhmut, which has no strategic value, and that instead what he should have been doing was basically holding back, getting some of these weapons, conserving ammunition. One of the things that it kind of pointed to me is <clears throat> Zelensky is actually in much more of a desperate gamble than people may think. He's trying to hold together the actual population of Ukraine, and also part of the reason why he's on this whole push for more is they can redo math and how much they're expending ammo. Right today, Kamala Harris just landed in Munich. The NATO uh, Secretary General over the last couple of days has been making pleas from all over NATO. He's like, look, Ukraine needs a hell of a lot of ammo. I mean, if you're rolling through $60 billion of weapons in literally four months, and there's still not even an actual Russian offensive that's happening right now, I don't really know what to say in terms of sustainability of this conflict, because they ain't got no industrial base, they got no no ammunition or whatever of their own. Like, it is completely based on our support. So, And and Russia still has the capability to ramp up. If they want to. Rumors, right, right, if they want to. There have been rumors of another draft, just in terms of just sheer manpower. These would be inexperienced recruits, basically sent, you know, like, <laughs> like grist to the millstone mm-hmm. or whatever that saying is, but, um, but they do have that capability. And the piece that really stood out to me in that Washington Post article is we talked to you before about how Rand Corporation, which is mostly funded by the Pentagon, put out this long assessment saying, look, we are not headed to an outright victory for Ukraine. We are not headed to an outright victory for Russia. We're headed to a stalemate. And the best thing we could do is try to avoid a really long, it's already a long war, Mm -hmm. try to avoid a really long war because the costs of this thing are a disaster. The costs in terms of the obvious risk of escalation, the obvious risks of potential Russian nuclear usage, but also in terms of Ukrainian civilian casualties, Ukrainian economic devastation, world hunger and poverty increasing because of increased food and fuel prices. These costs, they say, are are far too great for too little gain, given that what we're headed to is a stalemate. So we told you about that. Well, in this report, they talk about how U.S. intelligence officials have concluded something similar. Quote, they have concluded that retaking the heavily fortified Crimean Peninsula is beyond the capability of Ukraine's army right now. Um, That sobering assessment has been reiterated to multiple, multiple committees on Capitol Hill over the last several weeks. So that, again, underscores this idea that Zelensky has put down and plenty of administration and congressional leaders have back that we're going to have complete victory. We're going to push Russians out of Crimea. That is a fantasy. They say that discrepancy between aims and capabilities has raised concerns in Europe 
that the Ukraine conflict will persist indefinitely overburdening the West as it grapples with other challenges, including high inflation and unstable energy prices. And against that background, here's the, the money quote, Biden's aides say they are pursuing the best course of action, empowering Ukraine to retake as much territory as possible in coming months before sitting down with Putin at the negotiating table. Now, is this really what they think? And is this really a strategy that they will stick to? If we get down the road and Ukraine does well and consolidates their position or right. takes back a little bit more ground, are we going to be are we then going to say, all right, now's the time to negotiate or are we going to feed ourselves this lie that we fed ourselves before? Of, Ukraine can win. We got to keep pushing. We got to keep fueling. We got to keep sending them, shipping them arms and, and increase the amount of military aid that we are getting them, because so far in this conflict, all roads have led to that same conclusion. If Ukraine's on the back foot and they're not doing well, oh, we got to help them. We got to strengthen their negotiating hand. And if they're doing well, oh, they can win. We, they can have complete and outright victory. So I hope that this report is accurate, that this is actually what they're thinking. But I remain skeptical until I actually see any sort of push for diplomacy, keeping in mind that it was the U.S., that nuked an early potential peace deal in the first weeks of this war. I, I don't actually believe it. I think this is meant to more pacify domestic uh, political forces that are against it. I am completely of the same belief. If they have even a modest success, there's no way in hell even the Republicans will stop the arms. I, look, I hope so, but we'll see. Uh, the second thing is that let's say that they're on the back foot tremendously. Then, of course, you know, the same narrative. Oh, we can't let it happen. Can't it's just, like a sunk yeah. cost fallacy at this point. So, I mean, we've got $100 billion invested in the, the only thing that may actually be the limiting factor is the, literally the sheer amount of ammunition that they require and our inability to provide it to them without uh, also hurting our own defense stock. The U.S. Navy Secretary already said that's the case. By the way, if you think we might have ammo problems, the Euros have way less of stockpiles than we do. They are already also on the back foot, and they might have to cannibalize their own forces. They're welcome to do that if they would like to. I don't think that they will. So if anything, it may be actual straight up industrial production of economies which are not in a total war environment like Ukraine that might be the broader limiting factor on all of this. But I think you should take Zelensky's recent push abroad as evidence that he is seeing the exact same thing, which is like, we're using a lot of ammo. By the way, uh, included in this, Congress is going to appropriate another 10 billion more likely to balance the budget of Ukraine, which I just I can't ever particularly get over that one. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna make sure that their economic house is shored up, not the IMF or any of these others, on top of the 100 billion that we've already appropriated towards them. So it is possible uh, that this could be the end, but I am very, very doubtful of it. Politically, uh, what we alluded to earlier, let's put this up there on the screen, Glenn Greenwald flagging this from a new poll of Republican primary voters. 50% of voters say they are less likely to support a candidate who supports providing military aid to Ukraine. DeSantis has not really said anything about Ukraine. We don't really know where he stands. Some of his votes in the House were pr pretty much just typical of what a GOP politician would say. But Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo have been actually criticizing Biden for not saying sending enough weapons to Ukraine or not supporting them enough. And clearly Trump views this as a major attack vector. Uh, there was a Politico piece from a couple of days ago where Trump believes that one of the ways that he could, uh, what he can divide the Republican primary is he can be the one who is anti-war. And I've always believed, you know, that Trump is incredibly good at pointing and finding a cleavage in American policy where nobody's willing to say it. But at the, now look, we had an argument about this with Kyle and Marshall on the other side. They were saying, oh, well, actually, it's very popular to support Ukraine. I mean, right now we're at 50-50. Um, 
And in terms of where the conflict is likely to go, you know, oh, we're going to ship another 10 billion. Well, that's going to make headlines. Maybe that'll change things. If Depending on how the Ukrainians do, that could change things as well. Who know, Who the hell knows what things are going to look like a year and a half from now? So if I was Trump, I'd be a betting man on this position, absolutely. Clearly, he's leaning into. I yeah. mean, this is one of the first things he hit Nikki Haley on. They're signaling they're going to hit Ron DeSantis over it. As you said, Sagar, I don't think DeSantis has said a lot mm-hmm. with regards to Russia. The things he has said have been a quite different tone than what uh, Trump has said. I've got a, a New York Times piece on DeSantis's foreign policy uh, approach where they've got a few quotes here. They say, where Mr. Trump responded to the war by calling Russian President Vladimir Putin a genius for invading, Mr. DeSantis decried the invasion as a res- Russian strategic blunder. Trump long admired Putin as powerful and intelligent. DeSantis has dubbed him a, quote, authoritarian gas station attendant. Trump notoriously accepted Putin's denial of Russian meddling in the mm-hmm. 2016 election. This is from the New York Times, guys. Mr. DeSantis in 2013 saw, quote, Putin as somebody who's trying to confirm the U.S. and last year included Russia on a short list of countries with nefarious intentions to engage in espionage or influence operations in Florida. So um, he's taken a sort of in verbally a more traditional Republican approach, like more like the way Mitt Romney talked no, about. Yeah, Russia. but none of those like are like we need to support yeah. Ukraine. No, so, I don't. I don't yeah. think. I, I'm from you know yeah. what I've seen. He hasn't said a whole lot on it, but yeah. clearly Trump thinks that based on his sort of more neocon approach from when he was in the House that this might be a place where he can push him. See, this gets back to the discussion we had earlier, which is, I think, the biggest limiting factor for DeSantis on foreign policy is going to be the fact that all the billionaires who are not going to back Trump are going to be the neocons themselves who are there. If you think they, uh, if you think like MSNBC people are cringe on Ukraine, you should meet some of these folks uh, (laughs) in terms of their views. Well, you've given us a good segue here because we've got a nice little MSNBC clip to share with all of you all this morning. All right. So as we discussed earlier, Nikki Haley launched her presidential campaign, much fanfare and girl boss energy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And it led to an amazing exchange between Andrea Mitchell of MSNBC and uh, John Bolton, and in which it's just like every piece of it is wrong in some way. So just take a listen. We'll react on the other side. You've quoted Mike Pompeo as saying that she is light as a feather. Would you be saying that about a man? Uh, uh, Let's let's, let's compare her with another woman. Uh, In the video trailer that she put out last week, Uh, foreshadowing the announcement this week, she opened up with quotations from Jean Kirkpatrick. Now, Jean Kirkpatrick, obviously another former UN ambassador. Uh, In the 1980s, I I would say Jean was America's Margaret Thatcher uh, and uh, a a phenomenal person. So the idea that Nikki is trying to associate herself with uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, I think is uh, a little presumptuous. The reason I found this incredible is because, okay, so you have John Bolton criticizing Nikki Haley. Fine. There are many things to criticize her for. We did it as well. But he chooses like the worst possible angle of being like, she's not enough of a neocon. For those of you who don't know, Jean Kirkpatrick, she was like the, she was in favor of Iran-Contra. She was like the intellectual author of Reagan era. She, she was a foreign, real Reagan foreign policy. Rollback person. Her view, her view was that we should support any authoritarian regime, didn't matter human rights abuses, et cetera. I mean, she laid this out in great intellectual depth as long as they were anti-communist. So supported all sorts of brutal dictators, like I said, Iran-Contra, et cetera. So he's like, she's not enough like that, which is a terrible critique. And then Andrea Mitchell responds by critiquing John Bolton, which again, good, lots of things to critique John Bolton on, but it's from like, you're not being fair to a woman. So it's like the worst, that's the worst conversation, the worst analysis all the way around. 
Uh, I would even say that Gene Kirkpatrick was at least a more talented speaker than Nikki Haley. Uh, so I'll, I'll say on a pure uh, p political talent level, I would also level that. I, but I don't doubt that. One thing that we were uh, talking previously about was about her leaning into identity politics by also decrying identity politics. Just look at some of the crap that she's selling on her website. Let's put this up there on the screen. Sometimes it takes a woman Navy t-shirt. I mean, sometimes it takes a woman bumper sticker with the Nikki Haley logo <laughs> down at the bottom. It's just so boilerplate cringe. I don't, again, Real I tweeted, Hillary this. Clinton vibes I tweeted this. I'm curious what you think. I said, you know, which political consultant gave Nikki Haley the mistaken impression any of us give a shit about her high heels? And, you know, somebody <laughs> uh, replied to me and they're like, hey, look, you know, 43% of GOP voters are coming from women, even for Trump. So if you figure how to tap into that and bring them out in primaries, there's a premium. No idea if heels does that, but presumably not meant for us. But I mean, am I the only person who thinks it's actually sexist to say that talking about high heels makes you a pro-woman candidate or appeal to women. Let's look at the data. 53% of white women in 2016 voted for Trump. White women also increased their vote margin for Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, you had more Latina and black women also vote for Trump um, in 2020, despite all of the whatever, you know, anti, he's a, and not a feminist, all this other stuff. So look, is there any evidence that that's actually what appeals to women at all? Well, I mean, like, why is it the superficiality is of high heels and of sometimes it takes a woman Think back to Hillary Clinton. I literally just laid out, she lost white women and she is the person who leaned into glass ceiling and all this other stuff. Where is the evidence that women care at all? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, okay, it's nice you're a woman, I guess. Yeah, that's nice. Like, it'd be nice yeah. to have a historic first, but tell me what you're gonna do, lady. Right. Like, right. it's not enough. I, okay, you have a vagina, congratulations. Like, what are you actually gonna do? Right. Um, and the, the other piece of this is it is such consultant brain because you see it too, you see it on the Democratic side as well. They just assume like, Kamala Harris is a black woman, so she's going to appeal to yes. black women, which again is like both sort of racist and sexist right. to essentialize people black like women that. Vote that, for Biden. that people are just so brain dead that yeah. they see someone who shares some identity characteristic and they're going to be like, that's my vote. Yes. It's Listen, there is something to people want to feel like you understand their experience, you get where they're coming from. That is real. But to just essentialize it like that, like the way to appeal to women is to talk about how you're a woman. Good luck. That's all I have to say. Well, also on the light as a feather comment, I mean, what Bolton was saying is that she is actually a policy lightweight, which is empirically true. One of the stupid things that Trump did was appoint her UN ambassador when she was formerly the freaking South Carolina governor in a non-competitive race prior to that, winning some like state legislature. She had literally had no thoughts whatsoever on foreign policy and then gets arguably, you know, at least what was in once upon a time was an important role to the extent that she comported herself she raised her hand one time and took a photo of it. It's like, okay, so yeah. now you're a free, now you're supposed to be president of the United well, States. And and yeah. listen, she could prove us wrong. She could have proved us wrong in that interview with Sean Hannity right. that we showed you earlier. She could have come out with some like, you know, deep policy thoughts and knowledge and demonstrated some sort of knowledge, expertise, vision, whatever. But instead, she just regurgitated this weird canned line about I'm not kicking sideways, I'm yeah. kicking forward over and over and over again. So you know, I'm not mad at her about her resume. Um, there's plenty of line items there, but you have to demonstrate some sort of political competence, some actual vision for the country, and just falling back on your age, your gender, your race, that you grew up in a small town, South Carolina. Good luck.
Good luck. All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, I know I can rub boomers the wrong way sometimes when I talk about them derisively. I just want you to know it's not personal. The ones who watch our show, I guess you guys are the good ones. But generationally, you need to understand how boomer and silent generation tyranny is soul-crushing to people who are my age. We genuinely cannot believe we have been ruled for our entire adult lives by geriatric overlords who not only ruined the promise of the country, but somehow still remain in power. Perhaps no better example of this exists than Dianne Feinstein, the 89-year-old California senator who officially, finally, announced her retirement yesterday. Too little too late, you ask me. She's been verifiably senile for years. Disgracefully, she refused to accept her limitations and give up what is actually a serious job. Feinstein represents the people of California, a full 40 million people, the largest in the entire country. California, if it was own country, would be the world's fifth largest economy, ahead even of France, India, Italy, and Brazil. They deserve proper representation. Instead, because reporters have been afraid to be too polite and our corrupt democratic hierarchy, the public has been shielded from just how much Feinstein has completely lost it. And funnily enough, the full extent of how far gone she is was actually put on display in her retirement announcement. Why? Because she literally did not know her staff had put out a statement that she was retiring. On Capitol Hill, moments after the statement came out, a reporter asked her about the announcement. She said, quote, I haven't made that decision. I haven't released anything. To which a fine staff staffer cut in and said, quote, we put out a statement. She goes, oh, you put out a statement? And then she walked away. That's insane. That's weekend at Bernie's stuff, people. The craziest thing is she's not even doing the right thing and resigning. Only she will not seek re-election in 2024. The people of California have to continue to have her represent them for a full two years when she will be 91 years old. If I sound callous, I'm sorry. I know it's a tragedy when people age and families have to deal with it. She was a private citizen. I would have nothing but compassion for her. But she's not. She's a public servant. It's just not right. The problem with the Feinstein situation is just how much the Democratic Party and her fellow geriatrics in power have gone to protect her. When the San Francisco Chronicle in April did a story on how senile she is, the only fellow senators admitting it on background said she was senile. No one would say so on the record. Worse, the only person on the record was Nancy Pelosi, who said, quote, Senator Feinstein is a workhorse for the people of California, a respected leader amongst her colleagues, adding that it is unconscionable weeks after losing her beloved husband of more than four decades and decades of outstanding leadership to our city and state, she is being subjected to these ridiculous attacks that are beneath the dignity in which she has led and the esteem which she has held. Oh, it's unconscionable. So outside of the corrupt deal to shield this from the public, maybe it just struck a nerve with Pelosi, who is literally 82 years old. She's only seven years younger than Feinstein. In fact, if you look at leadership in this country right now on a bipartisan basis, it will make you want to vomit. Sure, it's great. Pelosi is no longer the Democratic leader. We all know she still pulls the strings. Schumer is the spring chicken of the Senate. He's only 72. McConnell is 80. Our president is also 80. If reelected, he would be 86 the day that he left the Oval Office. Call me ageist if you want. I don't care. That's too old for the hardest job in the world. Trump, of course, is in the same league. He's 76. All of this is madness. In fact, the 117th Congress, which just ended, was literally the oldest Congress in American history ever. And it wasn't always this way. At a time when 50% of this country is below the age of 38, only 5% were the same in Congress. Now look, I'm not saying it's gotta be one-to-one, -one, but a little bit more parity would be nice, wouldn't it? And sure, 
age itself is not a determination of anything. Bernie has the highest approval rating of all young voters, and he's older than Biden. Buttigieg is beloved by boomers. He's not even 40. <laughs> the positions matter, of course, but at a certain point, we got to move on. Much of this, in my opinion, is a reflection of the ability to run for Congress in the first place. The basic fact is that boomers vote more and they participate in our politics because they actually have a stake in this country. People my age just don't. The average 75-year-old today is 77% wealthier than the average 75-year-old 30 years ago. Meanwhile, the average 35-year-old is 19% poorer. Same for those who are age 45 to 54. Those 34 and younger are also poorer. Much of you can also ascribe home values, which of course only helps the elderly. They have a massive net worth and keep, uh, keep going up with prices, making it only harder for millennials, Gen Z, and even Gen X to buy a house. Who cares about property taxes if you have no property? Who cares about estates if you don't and probably will never have one? Why even care about high income tax if the odds are you probably will never get there? That's why young people don't vote. It is also why those who do vote their own into power. I have no idea what the solution is, but I do know fragile systems like this, they do break. And when they do, it doesn't go so well for the people at the top. What I do know is at the very least, we cannot continue to be insulted by having literally senile people represent us in Congress while their nursing home age colleagues do everything they can to protect them. You can respect the elderly and the lessons they have to teach us while also advancing the interests of the rest of the public. Unfortunately, we have not yet learned to strike that balance. And I hope we do someday because whatever this nonsense is, it cannot go on forever, literally. I mean, look, again, I don't want to sound mean. I know it can be callous, but she didn't even know she retired. That's, that's insanity. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. What are you taking a look at, Crystal? Well, guys, residents of East Palestine, Ohio, are now being told they better stick to bottled water for the foreseeable future as a toxic soup of chemicals makes its way through that community's waterways and disperses throughout the broader Ohio River Valley. The derailment of a train packed full of hazardous chemicals has been a horrifying disaster for the local community and has been a lesson in the monstrosity of corporate greed combined with industry-friendly politicians and regulators, or in any case, it should have been a lesson in this political toxic sludge, but unfortunately, corporate media nearly across the board has failed to give Americans any context for how the hell this nightmare situation came to pass in the first place. Norfolk Southern and their industry allies have perpetrated a grave crime that could impact this part of Ohio for generations. And the corporate news media have served as accomplices in the cover-up. According to a comprehensive analysis from Media Matters, only 3% a broadcast coverage mentioned the years-long successful industry campaign to weaken rail regulations. And if you don't understand the way that corruption fueled this disaster, you really don't understand this story at all. It is just a tragic, inevitable act of God with no one to blame and no action to be taken. And that is precisely the way that industry wants you to view this derailment. As our friends at The Lever reported, Three different administrations failed to regulate the rail industry in ways that very specifically contributed to the devastation of this crash. The Obama administration exempted trains carrying exactly the sort of chemicals that were on this train from being classified as a high hazard flammable train, designation that would have subjected them to more stringent safety regulations. After seeing this train turn into a giant fireball and official warnings that if not for the controlled release, it could have literally detonated like a bomb blowing up the entire town, 
Imagine the levels of corruption that would lead to such materials failing to be designated as high hazard and as flammable. The Trump administration, though, they went even further. They rolled back Obama-era safety regs, which would have required modern braking systems to be rolled out industry-wide. Now, this particular train relied on a braking system literally invented in the 1800s. And as a result, experts say the devastation of the crash was much more profound, with more cars derailed, more toxic chemicals spilled. And the Biden administration, with Pete as absentee figure, figurehead at the top of the Department of Transportation just let the new corporate status quo reign. Civil War era breaks unregulated toxic chemicals and all. But they did add their own special little touch by effectively backing industry's approach to screwing and stressing and stripping their workforce down to the bare bones, all in the name of cost cutting so they could give their executives bonuses and their shareholders a multi-billion dollar giveaway. Three administrations, Obama, Trump, Biden, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, they all birthed this whore. Anyone pretending that it's only one party or one person to blame for these years of failures and in industry bootlicking is a liar and a hack running cover for their team. Anyone pretending like this was a fluke accident which couldn't have possibly been prevent prevented is also a liar and a hack running cover for industry. And a look at the news media's coverage is to see an entire universe of liars and hacks with hardly a single exception. Now, media failures to reveal the real story, they were profound and they were really across the board. None of the Sunday shows covered the train derailment at all, not one. An American town was literally poisoned by corporate greed. They couldn't bother to make mention of it. During a key three-day stretch from February 10th to February 12th, there was not a single mention of this derailment in national news, not one. But the specific strategies that were deployed by each of the three cable news networks really exposes the nature and the purpose of the cover-up. According to that report, quote, on cable, national networks, CNN, Fox News Channel, and MSNBC, they aired just over two and a half hours of coverage on the train derailment. The majority of reporting was done by CNN, which dedicated over an hour of coverage across 42 segments. It was followed by Fox News, which aired 50 minutes across 22 segments. MSNBC spent 36 minutes across 19 segments reporting on the derailment and toxic fire that followed. Let's break all of this down. In every instance, you can see how the network's biases and political orientations drove their coverage. CNN did the most coverage of the three networks, thanks to their If It Bleeds, It Leads orientation. But while they cover the derailment because it's a sensational news event, not a single segment actually looked at the bipartisan political corruption that led to the catastrophe. Not one. Sensationalism with zero accountability. The CNN way. Over at MSNBC, they decided the best way to run cover for the failed response of the Democratic administration was just to mostly not talk about the derailment at all. Over a 10-day period, they devoted a mere 36 minutes to the catastrophe. To put that in context, this is a 24-hour news network. That means they had 14,400 minutes of airtime to fill over that time period, and they chose to devote only 36 to the derailment. Now, Fox, they did slightly more coverage, clocking in at 50 minutes throughout the 10-day period. But now they're leaning in after Pete handed them an absolute gift by talking about white construction crews and ignoring the derailment. With this blessing from the culture war gods, Fox has now decided to cover the story, laying into the Biden administration while, of course, conveniently ignoring the fact that Trump failures were some of the most critical in setting the stage for the current catastrophe. New Ohio Senator J.D. Vance went on Tucker Tuesday night. Take a listen. Well, Tucker, we've had hundreds of train derailments after we spent over a trillion dollars on infrastructure yes, in this country. Yes, so the fact you. that this isn't getting obviously better is a major indictment of the people spending the money and what they're spending the money on. Now, we know if you listen to Secretary Buttigieg today uh, that they are focused more on whether we have too many white men in construction jobs 
than he is on the fundamentals of his job, which is ensuring we have a viable transportation infrastructure in this country. And unfortunately, my constituents in East Palestine have been some of the main victims of the fact that we have failing infrastructure in our country again after spending tons of money in an effort to actually fix it. So the problem we have, Tucker, is that we are ruled by unserious people who are worried about fake problems instead of the real fact that our country is falling apart in some of the most important ways. You mentioned the Environmental Protection Agency. Of course, it says it right there. It should be focused on clean air, clean water. It's the thing that I'm most focused on for the people of East Palestine, but so often they're focused on environmental racism and other ridiculous things instead of fixing the problem that they are established to fix. So listen, zero disagreement for me on the unseriousness of Mayor Pete and Biden and all the rest. But listen, J.D. Vance, you are the senator for this state. You couldn't be bothered to put out a statement until nine days after the fact. You didn't care about this one lick until you could come up with a partisan culture war angle. So spare me your belated faux concern and outrage. Second of all, the problem here isn't from your list of right-wing culture war buzzwords, environmental racism or wokeism, as another Fox host claimed, or war on white people, as Charlie Kirk claimed. It's corruption and it's corporate greed, plain and simple. It's a system that puts profit over people and doesn't give a shit about working people, whether they're black, white, purple, or blue. And in this instance, very specifically as documented by The Lever, it's a story about a bunch of politicians on both sides of the aisle who would rather lick industry's boots than protect places like East Palestine. But you don't want to tell that story because it implicates the guy you owe your whole political career to. That would be Donald Trump. And you don't want to talk about that corruption because it leads straight back to your own party. You want to know why the media is covering up for industry on this story? It is the same reason they do it all the time. Because it doesn't fit their dumb, partisan, black and white narratives. MSNBC doesn't want to talk about it because it looks bad for their team. Fox doesn't want to be honest about it because that would look bad for their team. Instead, they invent some culture war drivel that in the absence of another accurate story is going to wholly fill the void. I lived 15 miles south of East Palestine for years, actually in the exact same county, Columbiana County. The toxic sludge that's now drained into the Ohio River, that is flowing right through East Liverpool, where I used to live when I gave birth to my first child. The core of my politics today were developed while I lived there. There are few places in America which have been more betrayed by both parties than this region. Steel mills shuttered, factory work sent overseas. In East Liverpool, the town budget was so stretched that the mayor used to use his own money and sweat labor to paint the municipal pool every year so that local kids could at least have a place to go in the summer. And no surprise, this despair and abandonment has also made it the epicenter of the opioid crisis. Now, the news media did not tell this story because it didn't fit into their little partisan bubbles. They didn't expose who was making money off of that destruction, the lives that had been decimated. They treated it just like they did this train derailment as an inevitable act of God. Who could help it? Thank God for truly independent media because we all know damn well the way that we have been lied to. And uh, this story has made me really mad on a variety of levels. The total dishonesty across the board, they either... And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. There's a whole drama over at the Federal Trade Commission led by Lena Khan. Um, there is a commissioner by the name of, what's her name, Christine Wilson, 
who has resigned in a bit of a blaze of glory here. She's got a Wall Street Journal op-ed explaining her thinking. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. She says, why I'm resigning as an FTC commissioner. Lena Khan's disregard for the rule of law and due process make it impossible for me to continue serving. So we needed to figure out what the heck was going on here. And we brought in the man himself, Matt Stoller, who is author of the uh, big Substack and is an expert on all things antitrust. And I knew it would be following this very closely. So great to see you, Matt. Good to see you, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so what is the backstory here? Uh, drama. Drama. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's like a, I'm going to call it Lena Khan derangement syndrome, uh-huh. right? You remember how like Trump just blew the minds of liberals and like broke their brains and then you know, the same thing kind of happens to Republicans. Like, this is what's happening in the antitrust establishment. So you have Lena Khan, and then also more broadly, a movement of people coming in, many of the viewers of your show, yes. who are saying like, hey, we should stop monopolies. We should do something about these problems. And the old antitrust establishment, which has been kind of a group of the technocrats living in a clubhouse for 40 years saying, um, this is a very scientific area and ordinary people have nothing to say. Mm. They're deeply offended. And Christine Wilson is kind of like, she's the protege of some of the original people who constrained antitrust Mm -hmm. in the 80s. And so she's just like mortally offended that Lena Khan would come in and say, no, we're going to enforce the law. And so her kind of going out with a blaze of glory, um, air quotes, sarcastic air quotes, (laughs) is, is her saying sort of to the that old establishment, the Wall Street Journal editorial page and the antitrust defense lawyers and the CEOs who are used to merging and Jim Cramer and all, you know, so on and so forth. It's saying, um, you know, how how dare she, hmm. right? And and she she legit believes it. She's not like, I mean, there's a lot of dishonesty in what she's saying, but like she legit believes that there's like a new era of lawlessness. But that's because she doesn't believe in stopping mergers or or the government being able to ban non-compete agreements or various things like that. She just thinks that that's outlandish, even though that is what the laws yeah. say. So. The reason why I think his story is important is it's like obviously a much bigger fight that's happening right, right. now. And one of the reasons I think we are, I want to do our best to try and elevate what Lena Khan is doing is, you know, when you contrast her ability to actually like do her job with so many of the other quote unquote young promisers in the administration, like a guy like Pete Buttigieg, the contrast is just astounding, like the level right. of competence. So what is the what are the actual fights that she's calling out that Lena Khan is engaging in that will have a major impact on our viewers and really all of us in America? Yeah, no, yeah. I, li- I like that you said like Pete Buttigieg. It's like, yeah. no, no, it's Pete, Pete Buttigieg. It's Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> well, he's the poster one example. Child, but yeah. there's many, there are many. There are many cases. examples. Yeah. But he's, but there's also just one. Yeah. There's one Pete. Um, <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, so. So there's plenty of, um, it's actually interesting because the department, they actually, it's a great comparison because they're actually, um, the Department of Transportation has uh, authority that is, was actually, the statute was ripped out of the FTC statute and given to DOT. Hmm. And so it's the same authority. DOT Hmm. is actually a little bit stronger. And one, you can see one person is using that authority and one person is not. So what is, what has Lena Khan done? All right. So she's challenged a bunch of mergers. So if you look at, I mean, you guys did a segment on Jim Cramer freaking out. Yeah. The reason that she that, that he's freaking out is because dealmakers on Wall Street are very upset at the new tough challenges to mergers. So mergers have dropped by 76% this year. Uh, that's not entirely an antitrust thing. That's also because of the funding environment is different, but some of it is antitrust. So yeah. she's challenged uh, you know, Microsoft and Activision. Um, meta within. We'll see what happens with the Kroger Albertsons, but you know a lot of deals are just getting abandoned. And 
you know, they, the FTC lost the meta within challenge, but made some important legal advances there. But broadly speaking, the environment for dealmakers is completely different. You can't consolidate your way mm -hmm. um, into dominance anymore, or at least it's much harder to do that. Another thing that she's done, and I think this is something that got a lot of attention, is that she said non-compete agreements, the things that the parts of employment contracts that say you can't leave and work for a rival, she said that is those are unfair and unenforceable. So she's putting out rules that, that are not enforced yet, saying the 30 million or 40 million people who are subject to non-compete agreements are no longer subject to those particular provisions. I mean, they're called non-competes, right? So that's mm -hmm. like pretty obvious that they're- Anti-competitive. Anti right? <laughs> it's yeah. right in the name. Yeah, that's <laughs> right there. Um, there are, but there are a lot, I mean, there are a lot of other things. So one of the things that she started on is, is, is a, a new policy that says um, that like a gym can't make it, they have to make it as easy to cancel as signing mm -hmm. up. Yes. Right, mm -hmm. which, um, and uh, there's, you know, there's, there's, um, let me see. There's, uh, what's it called? Um, Fortnite, uh -huh. right? Like yeah, there were game. there were certain like user interface deceptions that yes. were going on there, like dark patterns that make it easy for kids to spend money and and um, actually make uh, allow like in -game essentially purchases. sexual yeah, in-game right. purchases, but right. but also like sexual predation yes. of adults and kids, right? Because they made it far. We actually covered this. I think yeah. I did a monologue. They made it. Uh, they made it super easy for kids to basically get permission. To, like, uh, you had to opt out of the chat feature, right. which right. allows like people who are older to be in with like little kids who are right. on the platform. And they market so it to kids. So there is a lot going on there. Um, but the, the FTC came in and said you have to pay five hundred million dollars and stop all of this. Yeah. And that's that's actually changing the, the whole industry. The, the gaming industry is going to look at that and they're going to say, oh. You know, the engineer in the room who's like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this versus the marketing guy saying, oh, but our ROI is, says that we right. should. Right. The engineer now can say, the, you yeah. saw what happened to Epic Games, right? So right. it's these are changing industry structures in important ways. Mm -hmm. yes. And Christine Wilson voted against all of those. Yeah. Just to be uh, interesting. So uh, I see there's a, a Larry Kudlow segment uh, with her very, you know, very upset. They're saying that Lena Khan's approach is, quote, modern socialism. Okay. Um, and the the Chiron on the thing <laughs> says Biden's push for big government socialism. They call her the radical chair right. of the FTC. I mean, what's your what's your response to, to all of that? Well, I mean, the Republican Party is in an interesting spot because they have lived since the early 80s with a with a coalition of social conservatives and economic conservatives mm -hmm. working together to try to get conservative judges and conservative policy. Um, and that coalition is falling apart. And you saw that with Trump coming in and you see it now with Trump saying protect social security and yeah. others saying let's, let's cut it. But it also hits in antitrust and market power questions. So uh, there are there are a lot of young Republicans who are very upset with monopoly power, and they look at Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and they say these feel like private governments, and we're skeptical of government power. And then you have people like Larry Kudlow and the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and you know essentially conservative boomer donors yes. that that are like, no, no, we like the you know preserving our property, and that's like there's a serious and interesting tension. But the criticism of Lena Khan is really coming from the old school corporatist wing of the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment too. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, Chair Khan really upset a lot of Democrats when she, not 
not like Democrats in Congress, but like the antitrust establishment Democrats, the people in the Obama administration who really didn't challenge mergers, who allowed big, t- they were, a bunch of them were, not all of them, but a bunch of them were really offended. Got so yeah. this is this is kind of like a culture war among people who control all the money and power in America. Can you talk a little bit more about the Republican side? I mean, I don't, how was Trump on these issues? Was there any sign he really thought about or cared about or how were the people that he put in place? How do you think he would approach it if he was president again? Are there any other potential Republican presidential contenders who would, you know, side fall more on the Lena Khan side of these issues? And also, are there uh, genuine allies in Congress who back, you know, banning on competes and actually enforcing the law with regard to mergers? Yeah. So those are a lot of questions. and I'm going to forget them. Um, (laughs) First, talk about Trump. Right. Okay. Yeah. I already forgot that one. Um, So it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things that happened with Christine Wilson uh, and her colleague, Noah Phillips, who left a couple of, I guess, a couple of months ago, is that they actually got crosswise with the Trump administration. And um, so that they want to portray what's happening as a partisan fight between the three Democrats on the commission and the two Republicans, commission with five, you know. Um, But actually, that isn't what's going on. So under the Trump administration, there was, Trump filed the first uh, monopolization claim at the DOJ in 20 years. So there was Microsoft in the 90s and then Trump brought the first Google case. But the FTC brought a case against Facebook in 2020 under Trump. And that was a three to two vote. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, is it wasn't a three to two, the three R's wanted to bring it in the two Dems. It, It was two Democrats, mm. the Republican chair named Joe Simons, and the two people who voted against it were Noah Phillips and Christine Wilson. Mm. So she actually brought, voted against the Trump, Trump chair era. bringing right, a right. Facebook antitrust suit. Another example was, you know, Trump is very like protectionist and like want to make things here. Well, one of the things the FTC can do is they can say, if you label something as made in America and it's not, that's fraud. Well, the... Um, FTC under, you know, the Democrats at the FTC under Trump were trying to get this put into a rule. And they were actually working with Trump White House officials to do that. The people who opposed it, Noah Phillips and Christine Christine Wilson, Wilson. right? Lena Khan's first thing that she did at the FTC is to vote for this rule saying, to propose and vote for this rule saying made in America, fraud is illegal. Who voted against it? Oh, Phillips, Christine, Christine Wilson. Wilson. This, so this is, and this is on ideological grounds. Like, how dare the government? Mm. I think Larry Kudlow would say, "Oh, that's socialism, right?" But like, it's uh, obviously it's like that's that's silly. But the but the point here is they're offended at the idea that the FTC or that the public sector in general would work to structure markets in a way that doesn't funnel money and power to the top. And so that's what's really going on. And I think what'll happen. Uh, well, so there were a number of questions there, but like. What's going to happen next is Mitch McConnell will nominate, you know, there are two open slots. They're mm-hmm. eventually going to nominate some Republicans and they will probably be less libertarian than mm-hmm. Christine Wilson and Noah Phillips. And that will, it will sort of change how we do antitrust enforcement. But mm-hmm. I, I wanted, I forgot the other questions the you asked. congressional allies know. with regard to Republicans. Oh yeah. So, so the non-compete thing is really interesting. So you have uh, Todd Young from Indiana and you have Kevin Kramer from North Dakota. These are two senators who came out and said, you know, with some Democratic senators like Chris Murphy, they said, this is good. We don't have non-competes in North Dakota. We don't have non-competes, or I think there's trying to, there are serious problems with non-competes in healthcare in Indiana. Um, And they, so they came out and they said, it is a good thing that the FTC is making non-competes unlawful. And, um, you know, you also saw Jim Jordan on the other side, he runs the House Judiciary Committee. 
it is likely he's actually said, I'm going to investigate the FTC for banning non-competes. This is an outrageous power grab and may issue subpoenas and so on and so forth. Hmm. So you're going to, you're seeing like this weird split on the right. And like, there's an attempt to portray it as partisan, but it isn't. Yeah. Well, I'm enjoying watching it. Very Uh, interesting. People pay attention because these people control literally the entire economy. As you said, culture war of people who control all the money and power. I love that. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. We really appreciate it. We've got great content for you all over the weekend, and we will see you all next week. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.